Hi guys, it's the OG of the HRC and this is the OG of the HRC way. Welcome to episode three. We have a very exciting guest today, Candy Finnegan from the show Intervention, uh, the interventionist, you know, expert all around. It's amazing and can't wait to speak with her. But until we get to Candy, I just wanted to take kind of a minute to sort of check in and uh, just kind of touch base on something that's popped up in my mind. And I like to say that I keep a 100 with you guys at all times. That's who I am. I'm a girl from the 510. So I'm just going to keep a 100 with you real quick. The name of this podcast is the OG of the HRC way. And on my very first episode, I kind of like touch based on what that meant and yada, yada, yada. But I've heard from a couple people saying, you know, like, oh, are you sure you want to include HRC in the title? Because, you know, people feel a certain way about her. And and I didn't even miss a beat. And I thought, yeah, I do. And the reason that I do is because, first of all, <laughs> she got 65 million, almost 66 million people to say I'm with her in the 2016 election. About 60 to 63 million of those, I would almost guarantee you, push that button and said, I'm with her and I'm with her with pride. And why that's important is I feel like during the 2016 election, the media was sort of saying, you know, Hillary's the golden girl and she's the golden child of the Democratic Party. And and I'm here to say that's not true. And how I know that's not true is that Hillary Clinton's supporters in the 2016 election had to literally have private Facebook groups because things were getting so volatile during the primary season and then during the general And there was always this, oh, Hillary doesn't have the excitement of this person or that person. That's untrue. Still to this day, that is untrue. First of all, again, she got 65 million people, more than any white male candidate in the history of our country, to say I'm with her. Second of all, she she just released a book with Chelsea Clinton, the, uh, the Book of Gutsy Women, and it's remarkable, and I highly recommend it. But what's interesting is with a new book comes sort of a going on The View and going on, you know, this. Now, when she was on The Stephen Colbert Show with Chelsea, it was his highest rated Monday night show ever in the history of a show. So wait, are people not still excited about her? Do people not? I don't get it, right? But we're just not excited about her. Or how about when she was on Rachel Maddow in the same week and it was the number one show of cable? And I'm sorry to like break it to everyone, but Fox News kicks the ass of MSNBC and CNN Almost every week. That's just how it's arranged. It's a different type of channel, blah, blah, blah. Rachel Maddow was number one for the night, the entire night on cable. So to say that there aren't a group of people who still are invested and still believe in what Hillary believes in, which is what my entire point of this podcast is, is getting us back to the middle. And how I personally learned to get to the middle is through Hillary Clinton. If you look back on her entire career, that is always where she stems from, the middle working across the aisle, talking about things that no one else is talking about, working together to get it done. So with that, I just say, yes, I am going to continue to be the OG of the HRC way because that's what I believe in and that's what I wanted for this podcast. And if you are not a fan of hers, I hope that if you still want to listen, please listen because it's not, there's going to be some podcasts where her name won't even be mentioned and we'll just be having a great conversation about um, you know, 
the epidemic of opioids or about teachers. And maybe you'll learn something. And maybe you'll realize like after all this time that Hillary is not this sort of image that you think she is. That's what I hope for you all. And that's why I did this podcast was for those forgotten people. Those people who are Hillary Clinton fans who feel like they believe in the middle, they believe in moderate, and they don't feel like they have a voice right now. And also who are still hurting from 2016. I know it's hard for a lot of people to imagine, but it's real. Like I said, 60 to 63 million of those people were devastated the next night after election night, and they deserve to be heard from. And that's that's what all of this is about. So I love you all, and I'm so thankful to each and every one of you who listened to me and who hopefully will continue to listen and subscribe <laughs> um, to us here at the OG of the HRC Way. We just want to continue to bring awareness to things that people aren't talking about. And I also want to learn and I want to explore. And I'm, that's, that's my goal. And that's what I've learned from Hillary. So that's, that's that. That's why I will not be taking her name off. And I have her name on there with pride. And so anyways, I uh, just wanted to touch base. And, you know, uh, I hope you enjoy Nice interview with Candy Finnegan because she's a remarkable woman. And uh, by the way, I don't think Hillary's name is mentioned at all, maybe once. <laughs> so uh, hopefully you, you can learn a thing or two about addiction and the reality of it all. Um, but in, yeah, so enjoy the interview with me and Candy Finnegan. Thanks. guys it's the og of the hrc and i am so excited to have my guest here um i have to say i am a fan a fan girl you could even say of this woman candy finnegan uh interventionist extraordinaire thank you for being here i love it <laughs> thank you so much i'm honestly i'm overwhelmed uh okay so how did you become an interventionist what was the process for you well i think that to be honest with you, intervention found me. When I got sober, I was a stay-at-home mom. I just felt like, you know, when the kids would go to school, I would, you know, I would take care of my support groups and do that kind of stuff. But I thought, I'm never going to stay sober. Nothing's changed. I got these two kids, the same couch, the same red cup. Mm-hmm. So I just... um I just knew I had to do something. I mean, I... I have stayed sober in my early years because of service. That was drilled into me. Mm-hmm. And um, right after uh, I got sober in May of 86, and in June, I got a phone call from a friend of my husband's that said, you know, we're going to start a musician's assistance program. My husband's a professional musician. And, and uh, because we, we couldn't get help, when we wanted to get sober. So I said, oh, okay, and they said, come to a barbecue. And I thought, a barbecue to start? I mean, it just didn't, I, I just didn't know that everybody got together in the fellowship and I didn't oh, right. understand it. So out of that came the Musician's Assistance Program, which was union, musician union sanctioned, but they really didn't do anything other than give us a room for $10 a month. And this magical man named Buddy Arnold who was a Jewish saxophone player, jazz player, junkie from New York. <laughs> and nothing went together, you right. know. And uh, 
He said, I'm tired of getting these phone calls. And I said, well, what are you going to do about it? Well, we're going to do it. And we started in, and um, there were everybody that would get sober that was a musician would go back on the road, and I was stuck, you know. And he'd go, come on down here and go pick up this guy at this address. And i go, I'm not walking in there by myself. You know, guy, you're going to save his life. So I, I would do it. And I mean, and I thought... Perhaps I needed some training. <laughs> right. um, but I didn't have any idea what the process was called. I just thought it was kind of a snatch and grab and a, pray to God you can get them to where they're going. Right. And um, But I always remember shutting the door, turning around and looking at the house and thinking, why didn't I do something for the person that lives with this? Or why didn't I do something for this whole family? I mean, it, and at that point, I had no idea that it was a family disease. I thought it was a... You know, a monstrous, you know, addiction that you died from mm -hmm. if you didn't. And I'd seen a lot of people die. My husband being a musician, it was uh, in the 80s and the 70s had devastated everyone with so many deaths and so did the early 80s. So I thought, well, I know it kills. Right. And I went back to UCLA. My neighbor, um, Lori, who's still one of my best friends, she goes, let's go to UCLA and become drug and alcohol counselors. And I said, let's go and have sushi and a movie and tell them we're doing that. <laughs> I wasn't a school kind of girl. And um, we did. And so then I got kind of invested in really knowing and understanding the disease of addiction and alcoholism instead of just that you cross that invisible line, which I'd heard. And that piqued my interest, and I met a lot of people, a lot of really wonderful people, a doctor named Dr. Bruce Heischauber. These guys all wanted to go down and play golf. They were all uh, doctors, and this was a CEU class for doctors, and it was Vern Johnson who created the process of intervention in 1964. Yeah. I went down there. He called me Dr. Finnegan, which I got so hung up on. <laughs> I thought, oh, I just can like this a lot. Right. And... Um, it struck me so deeply. I remember it, it, he believes that it, it is an incredibly spiritual process. You don't intervene and go into somebody's life and, you know, talk to their family and convince them to go get help if you don't have somebody bigger than you with you. And that had never been explained like that to me. He was an Episcopal minister. And his state of fact was, you always tell them that they've heard their eulogy mm. and that people in the first two pews of their funeral are the people that should attend an intervention. Well, that's kind of macabre. I mean, it's kind yeah. of, I thought, well, you know, what if they don't have any people that are going to sit in the first two right. pews? We're in trouble, you know? Right, right. And um, I followed the spiritual phenomenon of that, but... And I have certainly said on more than one occasion, you've just heard your eulogy, so if you choose not to go, you'll know what's going to be said, but maybe not that nice, you know? Right. So that, it just all hit me. And I, I just, I did them, you know, for fun and for free and helped people as much as I could. And so away I went. And here I am 30 years later, thinking how lucky I am. Yeah, that's. It's sort of everything falls into place, your higher power. and I just stood still and looked up instead yeah. of sitting down, looking down. You know? Right, 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 without a doubt. How many interventions have you done? Oh, my God. I have, <laughs> I have no idea. You have no clue? Is there certain ones that stand out in your mind? Um, yeah, a couple, of course, do. They were so deeply family-invested. Mm -hmm. um, 
There was a world champion boxer. His kids were graduating from college. He had twin boys. They hadn't seen him since he was five. I think I saw that one. He had had two strokes. He lived behind the dumpster in um, New Canaan, Connecticut. And when he realized that those were his boys, I have never heard such a primal, guttural scream, sob in my entire life. Mm -hmm. And they didn't know they had a brother that lived less than three miles down the street from Oh, my God. And he had never actually seen this son, who was 11 months younger than his twins. Uh, all they did was have pictures, if you remember, of him in a pink Cadillac. I and do remember that, yeah. you know. And I think it struck me so deeply. He went to treatment. They kept him for a year. He never really completely regained his mental capacity because of these strokes. Mm-hmm. And 18 years of crack use. Right. But he would stand outside of this Circle K, and everybody called him champ, and everybody gave him the same amount of money every single day yeah. for years and years and years. And the, the postal man in that area is the one that sent in and asked us for help because there isn't any help for retired boxers. Wow. And um, I just remember thinking, this could go, I mean, this could go really bad. Yeah. It was such an inspiration to me to really see in this process of intervening on a family how you really do the minute they walk in the door start the process of healing Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure these one of the boys was very loving and kind and the other one was just livid Mm -hmm. at that he'd never cared enough about them he didn't really understand addiction and Right. He was a little hard of hearing, and it just everything just kind of escalated too. And um, he, he I've, I've never seen a kid cry like that, just in such sadness that he, this, his father had missed his life. Yeah. And um, we surprised both the boys. One of them was engaged, and we brought uh, his sister. And when she walked in, if you'll remember, yeah. he said how do I know you? And she said, I'm your sister. I'm your second oldest sister. And I mean, he hadn't seen anybody in his family in such a long time. But I mean, it's just like you think about getting so ensconced in a disease that you don't know your own sister. And it, it it was so wonderful to me. And it was so devastating to me because he had truly really distrusted um, the whole process of being a parent. He just died about three months ago. Oh, wow. And uh, he, after treatment, went to uh, live with his sister, and then the boys uh, lived about, I guess, maybe three or four um, miles apart, and they got some place for him to be in between oh, them. Wow. So he ended up being loved to death, and I, I, I thought, you know, crack was going to do that to him. Yeah. That is a complete story of hope. I remember watching it, and I remember when he cried. I was just, yeah, overwhelmed, without a doubt. I mean, it haunted me. I can't even imagine that. It did. So that's one of my, I always say my favorite intervention is the last one I did. Right. Um, And, you know, as far as how many I did, I don't know how many times I went to church, and I don't know how many interventions I did. (laughs) Just a whole lot. Right, right, right. I can understand that, yeah, without a doubt. So what do you think has kept you sober for the last 33 years, besides 
working in intervention and well certainly the love of my children mm-hmm. I mean I got sober because of my kids and because I had a mother-in-law that had a black belt and Al-Anon that didn't hurt <laughs> but you know um I did realize what a tremendous gift my children were and I would promise them and at the end of it I'd go if it works out you know and I promised myself that I would never um not be able to come through with what I told them I was going to do either for them or us or as a mother and um I was kind of high functioning until the very end I just knew that I would never be able to do what I do and have a cocktail as Mrs. Ford said, you know, the worst thing about the Betty Ford Center is that name's on the side of the building and I can't have a cocktail. Right. So, you know, the truth of it is, is that um, I don't, you know, have I always wondered if I was really an alcoholic? Well, there comes some days, but I also know the loneliness and the despair. And I, I always thought I was very controlling and kind of powerful. And boy, I couldn't stop drinking. Yeah. And uh, it really... It taught me a wonderful lesson of also how to ask for help. So I think it's a lot of things. I think 12-step, I think um, being in the program instead of around it, Mm -hmm. um, being able to have a voice and and be the face of recovery, all those things have been instrumental. But I really think a power greater than myself is why I'm still here. Right, without a doubt. Speaking of Mrs. Ford, I am... Myself, I am a huge fan of First Ladies, and I think they never get enough attention, and um, except for maybe the current administration. But um, Betty Ford, I've read so much about her, and she's so inspiring to me. Did you know her, or did you did? So um, <laughs> it was four o'clock in the morning, April um, May first, nineteen eighty-six, and I was down at a friend's house down the street. And I thought perhaps I should go to treatment since I only had two more days left until my mother-in-law was going to come back and get my kids. Mm-hmm. Not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So I uh, I picked up the phone and called Mrs. Ford at, I think it was about 4.45 a.m., called there and said, hi, could I speak to Betty? <laughs> they said, uh, who is this? And... Um, I said, well, this is, you know, hi, this is Candy Finnegan, and I can, I'd like to talk to Betty, and I just have a few questions to ask her. <laughs> and um, they said, well, she's not in. And um, she didn't call me back by, you know, in 10 minutes, so I, I ventured on to the next. But over the years, I uh, was a huge fan of the Betty Ford Center, and I sent a lot of people there, and they have a, a dinner that they still do uh, the first weekend in November, and I, I, you know, was there for many, many years. And and uh, the first time I met her, I said, well, Mrs. Ford, I wanted to tell you that I had such inspiration from Susan, their daughter, who actually put this intervention together. And uh, a man named Joe Cruz did it, who I just uh, adore. And uh, he was the first clinical and medical director of Betty Ford Center. And, and so I got to meet the components of how he, she put this together. But I said to her, oh, by the way, you didn't call me back. <laughs> and she said, I didn't get the message or I would have. And you know what? I believe it. You believe it, right? That's exactly who she was. She was, uh, I think there were times it became so overwhelmed that this is what she was known for mm-hmm. instead of, 
you know, her husband's (laughs) political career kind of took back seat to her recovery and everything that she did about it. She was very active in the center until she got ill. Yeah, Um, my boyfriend and I went to, he was asked to speak at the Valley Forge. I think it was that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And we got to do a tour of the Betty Ford Center and I just was so impressed by everything. Every And the one thing that stood out to me was they had said that their goal is to keep everyone for 90 days. But now because of insurance, they keep them, you know, 30 days if they're lucky. And I just had a client who got asked to leave at 21 days. That's and these people have really good union insurance. Yeah. I mean stellar. Yeah. And uh, because it was his first time in treatment and he was young, they felt that 21 days was enough. And that goes back to the old 21, 28-day programs mm-hmm. because usually that's all you could be out of work was less than 30 days, right. and insurance only paid for that. Right. So that's it wasn't that it was ever enough time to get clean and sober. Right. It all had to do with money. Right. I think that's the key with everything going on. Um, so speaking of that, so we have a presidential election going on. And really? <laughs> Just in case you've missed it. I did. Where have I been? Just a little bit, you know, just the start of one. Um, So as much research as I've tried to do of who has spoken out about addiction and anything, Senator Kolbachar is the only one that's pretty much from the get-go. Her father is an alcohol recovery for 20-plus years, I believe. Um, Have you read her idea? She wants to spend, I think, a billion Billion dollars. Yeah. Do you agree? You know, I never think that you should miss, you know, like politics and religion. But, you know, in this day and age, everything is just so enmeshed because we're in such a crisis. Mm -hmm. When you have somebody that leads the country who has lost a, a brother to the disease of alcoholism, and it was enough for uh, his brother to say, don't ever pick up a drink, and so he never has. Right. It's such a oxymoron compared to our last president who readily admitted he smoked pot and mm-hmm. he could have gotten you know, caught up in the, you know, being a dealer in, in, in the bad part of town right. in Chicago. And I mean, so, you know, um, I don't believe anything will be done at all mm-hmm. he uh is Under all about administration, it, 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 yeah i mean and it's difficult because when you have billions of dollars being spent by lobbyists i don't know how i mean i've been doing this now for 10 years about this epidemic um, i went to the first opiate epidemic um congressional uh, conference i was one of three people that wasn't in the um congress and we went to florida and we spent four days and I'm telling you, I was so stunned. I thought, oh, these people really cared. This is magnificent. And and there were a lot of lobbyists there. And I'm telling you, we walked out, shut the door. Nothing. Nothing. There were a few people that tried to make an impact and, in, and kind of impose their will on other people. And they listened, but nothing was done. I think that they just think it's going to go away, you know, right. and it isn't. So... It was 1971 when President Nixon fought mm-hmm. uh, war on drugs, and we've just seen a continuous up. It's like I was telling my producer earlier that anytime a president has a war on anything, it 
it means that it's not going to get solved. Is that how you're feeling? Well, I think that we have always, the United States of America has always taken care of its people. And we've had horrible epidemics. In the 40s, it was polio. And what did we do? We spent thousands and millions, well, I don't know how many millions at that point, but you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to get Dr. Salk to get a vaccine. Yeah, I believe he spent $1.5 million as a nation. Yeah, yeah but I'm saying yeah, that's, that's a, a drop in the bucket. Yeah. It, but back then, yeah. for one disease, yeah. we had a tuberculosis, a horrible TB in the 30s where there were sanitarium sent, and you sent them, and it was, it was, and you know, everything has always been front and center if we as a country have an epidemic. So using that word... We've had a flu epidemic. Mm-hmm. We've got to get your flu shot. We have the Hong Kong flu. We've got the bird flu. Right. I mean, you know, so we, what do we do? We, we get a solution. We had measles outbreak. I mean, we've always taken care, except for the um, opiate epidemic. Mm-hmm. And it's such a cliche because it's something that we, not we personally, but we as a country have caused Right. With, you know, this epidemic is due to a pill. Mm-hmm. This epidemic is used to that heroin is so readily available to kids from 12 to 80. You know, I mean, you could walk down the street a couple blocks and no matter what, ask one person that travels the world, you'd have it in probably 15 minutes. Right. It's, um, we have created this epidemic where before it was you know, kind of swept up on us. And so I, I I just truly believe that everybody thinks even though, what, 500,000 people die a year? Yeah. Um, it, it, you know, when we kept having plane crashes and we fixed the planes, when we kept having, right. you know, car crashes, we got airbags. It's like right. we've always been in solution. There is no solution to this because they will not stop the, um, the dealers. Right. So what is your solution? You're president. Finney. <laughs> like if what? I was president? Yeah, you're president. Oh, my God. I'd need to take a nap. Um, <laughs> I think that I would really seriously worry about the next generation my kids age in their 30s the 20s the young i mean i would you know I, you don't talk about me being present my god I, I'd, i'm such an environmentalist i mean right. i'd go crazy but i know in some shape or form I would not think that the United States Postal Service can deliver 100 ounces a month Mm -hmm. from China of fentanyl. Somebody needs to stop it. I don't care if you open the packages, you know, but that's how it's all getting in here. Right. And it's uh, a son and his his father. Mm -hmm. There was a whole thing on um, 60 Minutes, and they actually found the guy and said, do you know how many people? He goes, death is not my problem. I'd start with that. You know, I'd start with... uh, you know, having a little talk with China, not about the tariff, but about the guy that's <laughs> sending fentanyl. Right. Um, right. And I, it, it's, just, it's, we were in a crisis much more than an epidemic because mm-hmm. um, I was just re- reading and I saw, um, actually my daughter pointed it out, there's sweet tarts that have fentanyl in them. So everybody's really freaked out about Halloween. 
Wow. Don't take any Halloween candy that isn't in its original package. Right, right. You know, if somebody shows up with a baggie, right. avoid them. Used to be razor blades. Right. Now it's fentanyl. Yeah, razor blades. Yeah, that was when I was a kid. That's what it was, was razor blades. So do you believe that our country is addicted to addicts? I believe our, um, our, I mean, at this point, I believe that our country knows exactly what's wrong with us, and we cannot do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got too many powerful people. It's funny, I'm from Wichita, Kansas, and I grew up with the Koch brothers. You won't go in much farther than that. Yeah. yeah <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I'm just saying, you know, their family was um, very prominent, and I came from a prominent family, and I just thought, well, these boys are going to have some real opportunities. You know, I wish I'd run into them. <laughs> i tell you what. <laughs> right, right. I'd have a few things to say to them. Right. Now um, there's only one, though, because the other one just passed away. David like, just died. Yeah. And I am actually was good friends with Billy, David's twin, Who's who's the good Coke brother? But Charles is was uh, is married to one of my good friends from seventh and eighth grade. Wow! So you know, I I might ask her how she was before I blasted him. But, right. But um. Right. You know, it's power and money and power and money, and I know it's always been important, but I think this president has made it so obvious that this office is now about making him wealthier Mm -hmm. and not about caring for those that truly suffer. Right. And that's like you said, what's sort of interesting about it is that he lost his brother and he decided he... And and, and, and it took all of this for him to say, maybe I wasn't very nice to him. Maybe my dad and I, if you read anything about Mm -hmm. how they treated him, it was horrendous. Yeah. So... Do you believe that this has ha- this transformation has happened recently, or it's slowly over time? You know, you have the '80s with the Reagans and the Just Say No. Oh, Just Say No. Let's spend two hundred and fifty thousand dollars on T-shirts that yeah. say Dare. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, those things are now big collectibles. I, when I know. You... I have one from my childhood. Well, th- but they're big, big things yeah. when you go into. Uh, like um, goodwill and stuff. Yeah. I mean, I've been standing with people. Go, Do you have any dare shirts? You know, um, yeah. just say no is. Um, I, I liked it that she didn't say just say no. Thank you. Right. As proper as she was. Right. I uh, I think that I in some senses I think the Obamas were very realistic about it. You know, um, Michelle was raised with a, a father that, you know, was handicapped and. And all, they all really had to step up as far as, you know, right. um, helping out and, and all of that. And she actually didn't have that much time to, uh, you know, go to the streets because mm-hmm. she was, you know, very earnest and very, you know, educated. Oh, yeah. And she was just gung-ho to make something of herself. Yeah. He, on the other hand, you know, hung out and uh, hung out with the boys. and uh, Yeah. And it was cute in some senses because you watched no matter what was said you watched him back on that picnic table smoking cigarettes right. at the white house because he didn't have anything really to calm himself down mm-hmm. except he just wanted to go out and have one cigarette a day right, at the end right. of the day and i thought buddy you can have a pack yeah. um but you know it's like he understood addiction mm-hmm. very clearly and um could he do anything about it you know, apparently that one man is not powerful enough to stop this uh, 
this whole epidemic that we are having as far as the knowledge of how do you stop it you plug the hole over here and and then there's another tunnel being built over here right um and you know mexico was a huge provider of and then pot became legal Mm -hmm. which by the way it was all for in a regulated state of i mean if we had taxed it as we'd be out of debt right just like colorado is right I hadn't been to Colorado for a long time, and I walked outside and thought, <laughs> used to be fresh mountain air. Yeah. <laughs> you know, now yeah. it's a little wolf of, you know, yeah. and it's odd to see somebody walking down the street smoking a joint, but right. just like everything else, alcohol, it's, it's being abused in an odd manner. Mm-hmm. But I, I told, I certainly told my son I'd much rather have him smoke pot than drink, and he has an 81% chance of being an alcoholic and an addict. And so far, so good. I mean, so far, my <laughs> kids are, you know, my daughter works in this field, and that'll keep you sober, boy. Right. And uh, my son's a very successful musician and has seen the devastation that drugs do to the music industry. Mm. He's uh, lost his godfather to this, and does, I mean, he... he we were just around too many people that died. Right. And he understood why much better than I did. Right, right. So in terms of um, there's a big sort of movement with prison sentencing and nonviolent crimes, so drug-related crimes or quote-unquote crimes, do you believe that could help if we sort of got rid of, you know, the crime bill and sort of which is what Senator Booker is trying to do? Yeah, I like, I like him. Yeah, he's a good man. He's swell. <laughs> Well, you know, it's my concern is always it's like, you know, um, when Reagan wanted to cut back and he decided he'd close the two main state provided mental institutions. And we still they interviewed a guy about three months ago that was part of that um, exodus Mm -hmm. that left. And he was with on two days of medication and he'd been there for 11 years Mm -hmm. and he had down. Yeah. syndrome and they just didn't know what to do with him but we no no place to go right. no permanent address hit the streets and right. now he's not acclimated enough to I, I think a couple of years ago they got him section 8 housing but he didn't know how to take care of himself right so if there were more I don't want to say uh, federal or state regulated uh, treatment centers because those aren't run efficiently in my opinion but if well, we try have- to get somebody, I mean, at this point, the shocking thing to me in the last year has been people that are very successful, have options for really good insurance. Their kids, when they overdose and they go, let's say, into a hospital, immediately they put them on Medi-Cal. So they make sure they get paid mm-hmm. and they keep them on Medi-Cal because you can go to treatment twice in one year for 90 days on Medi-Cal. You can't do that hardly in any other insurance. But who's going to take you? Right. You could die on a waiting list to get into, and it's county mandated. So if you want to go to treatment and your Medi-Cal's from Washington, you have to go up to that county. You can't go out of it. And to get it transferred six weeks. So now we're talking about maybe nine to ten weeks. And, and, and you don't hope to God you can keep them alive. Right. You know, so right. it's, um, that was something else when I'm president I'm going to do is <laughs> revamp this medical thing. Yeah. I'm, I socialized medicine 
as far as I'm concerned, in the highest level is maybe not as efficient. At least we wouldn't be, you know, this Medi-Cal fraud in my business, mm-hmm. the insurance fraud, $143 million with one treatment center. Mm. That's a lot of money. Yeah, that's, that's a big chunk of change, without a doubt. I would like to see everybody that was, you know, in jail for possession of a, two joints let out. But I want, and, and I would, I don't know if they've claimed another addiction while they were in prison. Right. I, I'm kind of oddly familiar with that. And we had a very close uh, person to us who became a heroin addict in jail. In prison, right. Yeah. Right. Because what else was there to do? Right. Fold uh, laundry, take heroin. Right. I watched, it's just so silly, but I, I watched this silly show, Love After Lockup. Yeah. And it's these women, they are in there and they're more addicted in there than they were out. I mean, they come out and they're completely addicted a million times more and they explain how they get it. They explain it's so that in itself is a broken system, the the entire prison system, obviously. But, uh, it's just, it's sort of, I try to wrap my head around it because I am an optimist and that's who I am. But having a boyfriend who's in recovery and sort of exposing to me that whole world, which I personally had never been exposed to. No one in my family has, is at anything of that nature. So neither, neither in my family. I was really? the prize wow. child. Wow. <laughs> that became, became an alcoholic. <laughs> right. Right. So I see my boyfriend kind of, um, it was interesting when I was talking on the phone with you pre uh, podcast And you had said something about um, how the addict always goes into, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not. And I like a light bulb went off for me because when him and I are arguing about something, he always goes to like sort of that Fredo and the Godfather. No, I'm smart. You know, like that's it. And I'm like. And he, by the way, is is smart and very cute. Very handsome, yes. Yes, he's extremely smart. And I tell him that all the time. So you. But look how you've watched him being with him as long his immense success, mm-hmm. but his immense insecurity. Yeah. Oh my God, I'm going to go back to home. Oh my God, I do that yeah. Oh my God, I should have done that over. Oh, that looks awful. I mean, exactly. we are we are such, um, we critique ourselves wherever we go because we've been, we know how did we get in that? How did we cross that invisible line? You know, I thought I was a very high-functioning alcoholic. I hadn't lost my husband. I haven't lost my beautiful suburban house. My kids went to um, private school. I had a Volvo station wagon. I mean, what could go wrong, you know? (laughs) Right. Um, hmm. And I switched from, you know, Jameson's to vodka to white wine because red wine stains carpet. And um, it's like it all made sense to me, but I just was floored that I couldn't stop. So because of that insecurity of not being able to protect yourself from this disease makes you even more insecure. Now what's coming? If right. I didn't know that, kill you know. So, right, right. And I'm adopted, and I had that same hole in my soul of um, not pretty enough. Why did you give me away? Mm. What was wrong with me? I mean, when I walked into a 12-step meeting and I heard somebody say, you promised me you'd fill that hole in my soul. And I thought, they've got one too? Oh, they're not like me, you know? It was five years from podiums. I never spoke about being adoption. I didn't think it had anything to do with it because genetically speaking, I didn't know where I came from. Right. I got very involved with the American Adoption Congress and 
tried to really do a book about adoption and addiction. I can't get anybody that, there's so many people who don't know they're adopted because right. everything was locked up until 10 years ago. Right. And now it's open and a lot of unwed mother Catholic charities mm. burned their birth certificates. Oh and after seven years. So it's like, you know, I just thought a, an enormous percentage. I, I would say 80 to 85% of everybody who's adopted becomes dependent on something and um and during these uh conferences the birth mothers are over here talking about oh my god you know and and the the adopted mothers over here going did i do a good job and all the peeps is what they call them are looking for 12-step rooms (laughs) so you know it's like get me out of here right there's a there's a lot of of misunderstanding but that thin enough pretty enough smart enough that's our anthem Mm mm-hmm you know, yeah. and I'm not sure that that isn't the alcoholic behavior that I have. If I haven't been to meetings for a while or um, I sponsor women and I just haven't connected, mm-hmm. I start thinking, well, they don't need me. I'm fine. I'll just go ahead. And, you know, I mean, right. I go, mm-hmm. and then, you know, someone always kindly reminds me, when's the last time you took care of yourself? And I go, huh? <laughs> oh, okay. Right. Um, and I go feel better, go, what's the matter with me? What am I ever going to learn? <laughs> right. And I, I think that, that Tony's very much like that because I see him actively participating mm-hmm. in his own recovery so that he yeah. can have that relationship with you, so he can have that career. But he's, you know, he's still insecure because when he yeah. called me, he goes, do you know who I am? I- and I went, buddy. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> yeah, I know. yeah, I do know who you are. It's interesting, as I can tell when he needs to go to a meeting. And I like look at him and I'm like, oh, I think, are you going to go to a meeting today? That's what I always say to him. And then he goes, oh, yeah, maybe. I was like, maybe? Or, <laughs> you know, or sometimes when he's like really struggling, I go, I can't help you. I need you to call your sponsor. Because. <laughs> oh, my God. And I'm telling you, I said that to my husband and when he was, we got sober seven weeks apart. And, um, I would start to say, if you don't like it, well, I've been doing it for years. Why don't you call your sponsor? I mean, it was like I had somebody I could blame. Yeah. This magical man. You know, <laughs> it's a magical like, person. Yeah. yeah it's, it's the best. And he'd go, don't call me about your relationship. You right. call me about whether you can stay Seriously, sober. Yeah. And I went, oh, and that won't work. Right. And then a lot of times the sponsor will tell him exactly what I've been trying to tell him. And he's, I'll be like, oh, what did he say? And he's like, well, I'm like, he said basically the same thing as I did. But I'm glad you checked in. Glad we're good. Yeah. <laughs> they, well, you got this down. I do. Yeah. I uh, When I first started dating him, he took me to a meeting like very early on like I think he was speaking it was like two or three months in well that's you'll know the truth about him there yeah exactly he told his story and like the whole thing and I was a little overwhelmed but as time went on I just sort of threw myself in it and I like to say I've I've learned a lot about the big book and I've learned you know I just it's try magnificent. to be helpful to him because it's helpful to me too and it's helpful for our relationship well so. I've stayed in two weeks I'll be married 50 years oh my gosh you have no idea congratulations my mom says being married is the hardest thing you'll ever do being a committed relationship yeah yeah I married the man not the job I didn't know he was going to be a musician I thought he was going to play basketball with the Celtics and be an attorney and I mean I imagined that by the way um and he did want to be an attorney and um but he was so cute 
and I loved jocks, and he was a basketball player, so it just seemed like it was going to fit. He was raised in Ohio, and he was a full um, honors and scholarship uh, at Kansas University, and I thought, this is rocking. I mean, I'd probably been in school maybe 20 minutes, you know, <laughs> hmm, I'll take him. And, there you um, go. You know, he had he didn't drink, he didn't smoke, mm. didn't own a pair of jeans. You know, he wore khakis because when you're, you know, you're a, got a full ride, you have to wear suits a day. And, I mean, sport coats a day of the game and all that oh, stuff. Right, right. I thought, well, this is fine. <laughs> well, that Christmas, of course, I bought him cowboy boots and jeans and smoke and you know away we went but you know it's like I could spot one and he hadn't had a drink yet that was impressive um and so you know it's like we seek our level you know of who's going to understand us Mm -hmm. you have had had this long-term relationship now because you made a point of not being the problem that you're in the solution it just uh, we would certainly not still be married we'd been married 16 years when we got sober so but I contribute the success of my marriage to having the real same values instead of talking about what are you going to raise the kids you're going to be catholic they're going to be physical you know i mean it's like all of that didn't matter then Mm -hmm. when we met and fell in love and it didn't even matter after we had the kids we just figured we'll get them both it'll cover it all (laughs) but when we got sober i haven't been to a meeting with mike in 23 years i have the t-shirt heard the story right I, I go to women's meeting. He goes to men's meetings. Oh, okay. And the reason is, is because I need my own program. Right. That we stuff doesn't really go well in, um, when you're trying to get in recovery. It has to be an I program so you can join in as we. Right. And, um, you know, we spoke at a conference, South Bay conference, and they said, what if you has to... Um, be the Al-Anon speaker. And I said, don't look at me. Your mom was the Al-Anon. You can talk on it. And he just got up and told his mom's story because, you know, for two alcoholics. And um, it was funny because I kept, like, sitting in this chair correcting him. It wasn't a therapist. It was our daughter's speech therapist. (laughs) And he was going, shut up. Right. You know, I mean, this is, don't correct me um and i we have very different visual and memory and cognitive thinking about those years and you wouldn't know we were in the same place at the same time sometimes we perceive things so differently Mm -hmm. and so you know having your own program is incredibly important yeah no one got me drunk. No one got me sober. Right. So no one can take that away from me. And the work that I've done has been mine. Right. Exactly. Um, exactly. You know, I, I can blame some people, but right. it still doesn't work. <laughs> right. How many meetings do you go to a week? Um, I have had a home group for 29 years. Wow. I had this um, meeting with my friend Lori, who lived across the street for 11 years um, in our homes. Mm-hmm. And it was a women and children program. Oh, okay. And out of the eight kids that came to our house for 11 years, um, no, there were 11 kids. Out of that, eight are now sober. Wow. The only kids that were not uh, really afflicted were my two kids and her three kids. So um, my kids have been around, and it was important for them to know that when I said I was going to a meeting, what it meant, and, and me, and 
my husband and I have helped a tremendous amount of people that ask us to sponsor them and stuff. So they've seen that line of people go in the front door right. and do the work and read the book. And, right. and um, so they're knowledgeable about how you stay sober and how you help other people. And they both have been really good at it. Yeah. Um, I'd say I maybe go to two meetings a week. I really probably only need one, but I don't know which one it is. Right. I don't consider going to a meeting myself uh-huh. if I'm speaking. Yeah, my boyfriend doesn't either. Yeah. yeah. That's kind of participating in someone else's recovery. Right. And I always love to hear my voice. Right. On the other hand, um, that it isn't gonna, it's going to help me to help them, right. but I don't consider that a, you know, right. a meeting. And how important do you think it is to have your family, if you're an addict, understand and sort of get their own help too? It makes a 60% chance of uh, the addict alcoholic having success if the family gets into recovery. And, you know, for years, I just thought you went in there and told him what a creep he was and get in the car and we're leaving. And I left a lot of puddles, you know. This is a family disease, and I'm incredibly invested and interested in the family. I spend more time with the family in a pre-intervention than I do on the intervention. Oh, wow. Four to five hours. Wow. I mean, there are people that's gone. Okay, that's enough now. i got to go have a drink. <laughs> right. um, you know, um, it's really important, and I'm a big component of Al-Anon and, and any support group. I do not send anybody to a program that does not have a family program. Wow. That was the one thing I noticed at the Betty Ford Center. Oh, spectacular. Spectacular. There was, like, kids there. It was, like, kids. I mean, it was this amazing thing. And I thought, wow, this is, you know, and there was, like, I think that, like, daycare kind of center where they can go. Well, um, Jerry Moe started a family program, was initially, and then he thought, family? What are we going to do with these kids? Mm. And he has been the king of children's programs at Betty Ford. And um, he is one of the most amazing men I've ever met. I have three or four really big people in my life that are have really affected me. Claudia Black's one of them. Sharon Cruz is another mm-hmm. who started the um, family systems of the scapegoat and, you know, the whole the system things and brought family into the process of intervention at the Johnson Institute with Dr. Vern Johnson. Mm-hmm. She is. And Jerry Moe is... Uh, um, because daddy's not bad, he's right. sick. Right. He'll be back, right. you know. Um, but then you have uh, children that are adult children of alcoholics, and they have this mm-hmm. this um, non-knowledge of how it's affected them. Mm-hmm. You know, my daughter has been studying and, and really gotten very involved in it, and she was just with Jerry Moe yesterday. And she really would love to have her career end up at being at the children's program at the Betty Ford. Right. There is no other one like it. Right. That's what and uh, Jerry's about. latest news is is that he presented quite a while ago, and they poo-pooed him, that he had now has a Muppet on Sesame Street oh whose God. mother's in recovery <gasps> and is newly in recovery. And they've just uh, filmed the first episodes of it. And, I mean... Because it's that prevalent. I know they have an autistic Muppet. They have a Muppet in a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. But come on. When did you ever think there would be a Muppet whose mother is new in recovery? That's that's, where it starts. That's amazing. Yeah. That show is so monumental. I remember that show. Just 
continue. I learned so much from that show and you know, they made certain things acceptable and they talked about things and yeah, that's remarkable. That is true. And um, he's, it, I'm, I would have to say in some senses, it's probably going to be one of his proudest moments yeah. because it's taking it to the children. It's not taking it to the adults. It's right. taking it to the kids and kids don't understand. Mm -hmm. Are they capable of understanding that, you know, what went wrong and what did I do and why don't you love me and why are you leaving me and why do you lock yourself in your bedroom? Right. And, and I, I know that they didn't go to that level of it because, um, which I'm very glad about, mm -hmm. that uh, there wasn't an active addict. Right. <laughs> but the right. recovery part. So the kids can understand that, you know, yeah. it's a joyous time. I, my kids really didn't understand it because... Wasn't on the floor smoking pot, right. coloring with them. Right. Um, you know, I was going, I got to go to a meeting and I'll be right back. And right. and it was a whole new life, you know. Right. It isn't explained. We, we just don't, you know, I have so many people go, oh, they don't know what's going on. And I think, that's what you think. Right. You know. Right. Without a doubt. The kids know before you do. Absolutely. How, um, to switch it over here really quick, how, in terms of undiagnosed mental health and addiction, what do you think, how much do you think that's connected? I've heard about it being connected quite a bit on television and in reports, but people just simply turning to sort of medicate themselves? Well, I, yes, I think that's very true, but I think in the last couple of um, years, maybe five to seven years, it is now known as not a dependence. It is known as a brain disease. Mm. Who gets up every single day, goes out on the street, gets a substance, comes home, puts it in their veins, and never thinks they're going to die? Okay. I mean, you know, it's right. like it, it's right. suicide. Mm -hmm. Or that you drink all night and get in a car and think, I'm perfectly fine, I can get home. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like, it has to be a mental malady. Right. And now that it's been formed as a brain disease, it is a mental disease. Right. It can be controlled. It can be sustained if you don't pick up that substance that made you crazy. Right. But, you know, for us to just think it was a physical craving, we're past that now. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say, I, I, I don't know anybody who isn't dual diagnosed. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's some kids who just smoke pot. Right. Why are they smoking pot so much? Is it because they're unhappy or, and they sit in front of a video game? I mean, it's like all hypnotic, all self-soothing. And um, I sometimes think that we're missing the boat by not making the dual part of the mental health come before mm -hmm. the treatment for the substance. Mm -hmm. Because I've seen jillions of people who get sober, they go to meetings every day for eight years, mm -hmm. everything's perfect, and they've never ever dealt with any outside help for their mental condition, they can't stay sober. Right. They, it's like they might be even gripping by their fingertips, mm -hmm. but they still cannot stay sober. And the reason is, is because the mental part of this has not been treated, just the physical. Right. And then here comes the spiritual, mm -hmm. which is what keeps us here. Right. So I would think an example of that then in like a celebrity is like Carrie Fisher, right? She was diagnosed bipolar and she couldn't figure it out. So she definitely turned to drugs. I mean, yeah, and um, she was kind of 
always on the, she, she was a really funny person, but she was always on the cutting edge, you know. Um, she was doing um, electric shock treatment yeah. every six weeks instead yeah. of once in a lifetime. Right, yeah. And everybody's going, well, that's going to drive her crazy. Yeah. And ketamine, these ketamine infusions, you know, she was on the cutting edge because of who she was and the doctors that she had. But you will realize she got on a plane yeah. and nodded out and died of heroin. Yeah. It looked like everything was pretty good. I mean, it yeah. looked like her life was good. She's a wonderful daughter, her mom. Yeah. I mean, she had her little life together. But it wasn't enough. And, yeah. you know, I would think it would have to do with her, her mental, mental state. Illness. Yeah. yeah. Um, without a doubt, I, yeah, it's sad. I know she, she fought the thought, I will tell you that. Yeah. She did. To, um, that's what my boyfriend had said, because he'd seen her, you know, in the rooms, and, like, she was trying her hardest, he said, but just got the best of her. You know, it's sad. It's very, very sad. It is. It gets the best of a lot of people. You do not have one more going out if you get sober. You do not have one more. Let me just have one more. There is no such thing. Right. Right. No such thing. There's a wonderful woman named um, Amy Dunkel who uh, um, trains all over Southern California for Narcan. Mm-hmm. If you have somebody that you think is on opiates or a peanut allergy, mm-hmm. get an EpiPen and get some Narcan. Yeah. I mean, it's like, yeah. you know, duh. It's wild to me because during the last election, that was one of Hillary's policies was that she wanted to put that on every first responder's across the state because it's wild that they don't all have it. I mean, well, uh, first responders, EMTs had it, yeah, but emergency rooms didn't. Yeah. And only a certain kind of doctor, none of no treatment centers had it. Yeah. It's um crazy. Well, it's like, you know, inexpensive saves lives, right. why bother? Right, that's what Well, I there mean. there there's was a county in West Virginia that if you had been Narcan three times in a year and you called and you'd overdose, they weren't going out the fourth. Oh my and I thought, who died and left you in charge? Right. I said to him, buddy, That's, wow. <laughs> please don't be this way. Yeah. I remember when I read her policy when I was just shocked. I was like, this is not a normal, I knew what it was, but I mean, my mom and dad, they live in Idaho in a very small town. So my mom works at the pharmacy. So she saw all kinds of craziness going on and so that's how I knew about it and I couldn't believe that it's just not accessible to everyone it is now oh it is yeah so this uh, wonderful woman Amy Dunkel uh, works for a foundation um her son had I believe 100 days clean and sober and got out of treatment and he was dead an hour later Mm. one more time and so she's dedicated her life to doing Narcan instructions and um, telling her story, and uh, she's amazing. Every Saturday, she takes three young people that she has met through um, through this tragedy, and she takes them, and they give uh, homeless and, and train the homeless how to give Narcan, and oh she saves so many lives. That's amazing. She is. You That's... Talk about yeah podcast boy. Yeah. get her on that's, here she that's just, exactly the kind of thing that i I'm oh looking she's for is, so amazing and yeah. so kind and totally unpresuming i mean just like <laughs> it's, it's just me and i'm 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 not gonna let this child die without purpose wow those are like unrecognizable angels 
You know, I'm he, making a lot of people recognize her. She's yeah. going to be speaking at the opiate conference here. And she rocked my world. I mean, I just looked at her and thought, how did you get up? Yeah. I mean, you know. Right. That's remarkable. So I have one final question for okay. you. And that is, um, use three words to describe yourself. Oh, you're asking an alcoholic I am. woman That's to describe exactly herself? <laughs> um authentic compassionate silly i uh i i will agree to that that's those are good ones i would add smart you're extremely smart you're very knowledgeable well i'm i don't think i can be an expert unless i know what i'm talking yeah. about i'm still in just like you yeah. incredibly teachable mm-hmm. and when i know everything i'll let you know right, right. my husband goes you don't know everything? And I went, well, kind of. But, um, yeah, no, I love to learn. And it's just like you were talking about when, you know, that Hillary wanted, I mean, those were things that nobody knew about. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, um, Bill grew up in a very dysfunctional. His dad was mm-hmm. um, an alcoholic, and and uh, his mother remarried, and he was and, an alcoholic. Uh, yeah. And, mm-hmm. um so it wasn't so shocking to me that he had said he was an adult child of an alcoholic such low self-esteem right. even though he was a genius oh yeah and he found the perfect gallon on to yeah codependent to go along with him yeah um you know everybody can find their mate mm-hmm. um if you're willing to grow with them yeah i think that's key Without a doubt, I think uh, you have to be open for that. Because I think, to be very honest, before I met my boyfriend, I wasn't open. I was all about me, me, me all the time. And then when I met him, I went, whoa, what is going on? And well, I it's, a we, it's a we thing, you know. Yeah. And most of us are I people. And yeah. um, I met Mike when he was, my husband, when he was so young. He was 20 and I was 18. So, you know, it's like, oh, really? Yeah. Here we are 50 years later. Right. And I have had such a joy of being able to grow, I hate to say old, because I'm not old, but no. um, to grow and, and uh, when we got sober together, that put a whole new swing on things because yeah. um, uh, a lot of times when I wanted to drink, I have seven more weeks than he does, and trust me, You're I wasn't giving it up. <laughs> right. I'm the girl that went, call your sponsor. <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. All right, well, Candy, thank you so much for being here. I hope you'll come again. I will. And, uh, I mean, thank you so much for doing this. This is, um, I, it's like every time I talk to some friends, they go, oh, have you heard this podcast? And I go, no, send it to me. I mean, it's the cutting edge of the truth now. It is, it is, and I'm just trying to make a difference and just bring awareness. That's all I'm trying to do, you know? But you're trying to learn. I'm trying to learn, too. Learn a lot. I love to learn, too. I, I am a big learner. I yeah. can see you have a lot of books in your house. I and, do. <laughs> and, you know, as I said, first house I walk into that has nothing but a Kindle, I'm leaving. Right, 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 right. Exactly, exactly. Good. Thank you so much, Candy. Until next time, this is the OG of the HRC signing off. Mm-hmm.